Okay, welcome to Deep Impact, the series about the media we love and the impact it had on us and others. As the title implies, the point of this series is to take a deep look at the games and shows we love and discuss why they had such a lasting effect on pop culture and the way they impacted us personally. My name is Nate, I am a huge nerd, and I have a background in political journalism, and I am here with my best friend. Hey, I'm Link Keller, and I have a background in media psychology, and I am also a huge nerd. <clears throat> and I've decided to kick off this series by talking about a game a series, really. Uh, it's not just one game that is personally very important to me uh, and my uh, growth as a nerd, Final Fantasy VII. <clears throat> now, I've been a huge fan of the Final Fantasy series uh, for a long time. It started with Final Fantasy VII, but it grew into a love of the overall series. Uh, I don't know, do, how familiar are you with Final Fantasy? So until fairly recently, I had uh, very little knowledge of the Final Fantasy franchise world, everything. Um, I had played like 10 minutes of the um, Final Fantasy 3 Game Boy Advanced game uh, and was like, nah, and never really played it again. Um However, more recently, I have had the opportunity to watch other people play some of the later titles. Um, uh, I guess most recently, um, Final Fantasy VII Remake, I got to watch majority of that. But um, yeah, it's not uh, a game that I have personally played very much, um, and I don't have a strong emotional connection to, but it is definitely like a an important series like it is a game that i have heard so many people talk about um not just in like having enjoyed played it or playing it but mm -hmm. also from like this game was so impactful for me like this game changed what i thought about games or this game like you know made me fall in love with characters or whatever and this is definitely one of those uh those games that's had a large ripple through our our pop culture so i'm uh i'm really excited to talk about the Final Fantasy VII Extended Universe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I definitely fall into that category of people you just mentioned of like, yeah, Final Fantasy, the, that uh, that did it for me. <clears throat> you know, uh, it start for me, it started with Final Fantasy VII. Uh, it was actually I never I never owned a PlayStation when I was growing up. Uh, I had a Super Nintendo that I played at my grandma's house when mm -hmm. she would babysit me, but I never had any Final Fantasy games. Uh, I think uh, she had she bought uh, five or six games from Costco at the same time that she bought the Super Nintendo and never got any more because <laughs> uh, she she got it just to you know put on. Yeah, just something to, to babysit the kids yeah, with. Yeah, something to appease you. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it's at least half of them were good games. That's pretty good. Yeah, it, Super Mario World and Mario Kart I played a lot of, but uh, getting off track, I didn't, you know, play Final Fantasy until I was 17 and I got a PlayStation 2 for my birthday. 
and one of the first games that I bought for PlayStation 2 was uh, a special hits collection version of Final Fantasy 7. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so for one of the first games I played on my PS2 was a PS1 game. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, but it really sparked this love of the Final Fantasy series overall because through that, I met other people who liked Final Fantasy and introduced me to the other games uh, in the series. And, you know, I just got really into it from there. Um, Have you played all of them? I have not completed all of them. I have played a minimum of at least five minutes of each of them. <laughs> okay, that's pretty impressive. There are, there, I mean, I mean, even I'm not the biggest. Of... I'm not claiming I'm the biggest Final Fantasy nerd. Uh, I may be a pretty big Final Fantasy VII nerd. <laughs> uh, I have a love for the series overall, but uh, specifically, you know, I really like the PlayStation Final Fantasies. This is uh, so. So, Final Fantasy VII uh, is the first Final Fantasy game to come out on PlayStation, right? Yes. But you didn't play it until you were you know, like a junior in high school. Yeah, on a PlayStation so, Two. So yeah. Uh, so I always had nostalgia built into my experience. Okay. All right. That's really cool. So um, as we go into this conversation, uh, deep dive into deep impact of of this game um let's uh let's start a little bit with like some of the the backgrounds um i know that you are quite knowledgeable about this stuff so why don't you tell me a little bit about how this game you know got here and how it got into your hands and how it got made (laughs) okay uh well i mean uh it got into my hands personally uh because it was the Second game that I bought for my PlayStation 2 uh, when I was 17, junior in high school. Uh, The game originally came out in 1997 for the PlayStation 1, uh, but I never had a PlayStation growing up, so I had to wait until I got a PS2. But the life of Final Fantasy VII really starts back in 1995, uh, which was... Uh, That's when development of the game originally started. It was a year after the release of Final Fantasy VI in Japan, released in America. Final Fantasy VI was released in America at the time as Final Fantasy III, uh, which that's a whole other discussion. (laughs) Yeah, wow. (laughs) Um, So, uh, Okay, so 95 is when Final Fantasy came out. Final Fantasy VII. (laughs) That's when it began development. It came out in 1997. Okay. So originally it was going to be a Nintendo console follow-up to Final Fantasy VI. Uh, Final Fantasy had been a mainstay brand of the Nintendo console family for, you know, however many years. I think the first Final Fantasy came out in 86, but don't quote me on that. Um, yeah, so like a like a decade it's coming out on on like Nintendo cartridges, right? Yeah. Uh and it was originally developed to be on the next uh, Nintendo console, which would have been the N64. Mhm. Um but development got uh 
it ran into a speed bump halfway when you know the general ambitions they had for the game kind of exceeded the technology mm-hmm. uh, so the reason that final fantasy 7 uh began a new life a new development for sony's playstation was because of the higher uh memory uh storage capacity on the playstation laser discs as opposed to nintendo 64 cartridges yeah and you can go online, you can find, you know, old, uh, like, test animations for what Final Fantasy VII would have looked like on the N64. <laughs> Very, well, I mean, yeah, the final product is still blocky, but Even much blockier. more so. <laughs> um, so. Okay, so they, they decided to, to switch to Sony, which I'm sure is like a political choice in of itself, but they, they switched for... The, it was a hugely contentious point amongst the fans. Ooh. Final Fantasy VII kind of started its life uh, with a chip on its shoulder from carryover Nintendo fans that didn't want to buy a new console to play the next game. <laughs> yeah, uh... Okay, so then they decided to do the CD for Sony for the PlayStation, and uh, it came out in Japan first, right? Yeah, it came out in Japan three or four months. Actually, no, that's that's wrong. It came out in Japan about one month before the U.S. release. Uh, And actually, from its inception, due to the popularity in America of Final Fantasy III, which, again, was Final Fantasy VI in Japan, they were actually able to really ramp up the international marketing for this title, uh, which is one of the reasons why it's become such, uh, like, you know, a classic title. Uh, They spent somewhere in the range of $30 million in American ads. Uh, Damn. Excuse me, I look at my notes here. Uh, 20 million for US ads. Total ad campaign budget was 50 million. Wow. Which is, which at the time was uh, the highest advertising campaign for a single video game release. Yeah, damn. And one thing to note is that part of this ad campaign, they really stressed in the commercials the uh, really new, fancy looking, pre rendered uh, cutscene graphics. Which anyone who's played Final Fantasy VII knows that the actual gameplay looks nothing like the level of detail in the cutscene <laughs> graphics. Yeah, they're they're very different. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which, and this isn't a hard fact, but I have heard that at one point uh, Final Fantasy VII all was simultaneously the most popular Final Fantasy game, as in sold the most releases and also the one with the most returns <laughs> due to people being disappointed with the visual look of the game and how oh, different it was from yeah. the, from the ads which really stressed that it was like a totally revolutionary new graphical action game and then you know you start at the game and you're a little boxy dude doing turn-based attacks yep Surprise, it's a JRPG. <laughs> so, bit of a disappointment. Um, but, again, from my experience, I kind of knew what I was getting into at that point because Final Fantasy VII was not my first JRPG. Uh, I never had a PlayStation, but I did have a Game Boy, and I played a lot of Pokemon. So, 
Yeah, anybody who's familiar with Pokemon knows that it's really just your standard JRPG format of, you know, turn-based mm-hmm. uh, party system, except instead of characters, you're one dude who has a bunch of pets that you do <laughs> animal fights with. Pit fights. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I guess, I, I mean, obviously, JRPGs have been a huge genre in japan is that's what the j stands for mm-hmm. um it, it, not as popular in america i have to imagine that final fantasy 7 had to be one of the first like major jrpgs that that got like real popular in america i do not know if that's true but it, it's <laughs> it's pretty true um the history of jrpgs in a western market uh can really be traced back to two games. Uh, one, of course, is Final Fantasy One, which uh, released in America to like pretty. W- it was pretty well received. Still, definitely a niche market. You know, mm-hmm. not as pod did not sell as well as it did in Japan, but uh, it started building a market here. Yeah. Uh, side note. Uh, do you know why the series is called Final Fantasy? I think I've heard this story before. Correct me if I'm wrong. It was um, basically the development company was out of money and, and they were like, this is going to be the last game that we can make. Like, this is this is the final fantasy is we're just we're going to put everything into this because this is our last chance. And it ended up being like super duper popular. And so now there's... <laughs> A huge series that has the word final rated. <laughs> I think that's funny. Is yeah. that is that what happened? That's the that's the popular story. What I do know to be true also is that the development of that first Final Fantasy game was really a Hail Mary from the beginning because they didn't have a lot of ideas for what they were going to do. They knew they wanted to do a you know general fantasy game. Final Fantasy, but they decided to go with a turn-based RPG because they were trying to copy the popularity of another JRPG series called Dragon Quest. The first game had just come oh. out the year before in Japan and was crazy popular. Now, I did I did play a Dragon Quest game. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Baby, Baby Square said, wow, we have nothing. Dragon Quest is really popular. Let's Let's try and knock them off, but probably in a much more creative and non non libel libelous way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but back to Final Fantasy VII. Where were we? Uh, we were talking about a lot of the advertisements and and how um, you know people were were disappointed with the. I was getting into the history of JRPGs in a Western market. Yes. Yes. You have Final Fantasy One, moderately popular in. In America, uh, Final Fantasy II came out in Japan, never got released in America. Instead, we get to Final Fantasy IV in Japan, released in America as as another Final Fantasy II. Final Fantasy VI in Japan comes out, and they release it in America as Final Fantasy III. and it is also one mm-hmm. of the top uh, selling titles for the Super Nintendo in America. Uh, and so Final Fantasy VI, at the time Final Fantasy III internationally, 
is really responsible for introducing the concept of the turn-based Japanese RPG to Western audiences. And then Final Fantasy VII is what really made it, it cemented it as a genre that is internationally viable. Uh, Hironobu Sakaguchi is the, within the Square Enix company, he's the guy. He was the director of the first six Final Fantasy games. Um, and he's been wow, okay. the, like, driving creative force pretty much, uh, from the beginning of the series up through Final Fantasy VII, which is when you start to see other people within the company have more prominent, uh, voice in the development of the games. But one of the main concepts within the world of Final Fantasy VII that I want to get at is there's this thing called the life stream, which is basically like, uh, well, I mean, anybody who's played the game knows that it's the lifeblood of the planet. Uh, it is a giant underground magical river circulatory system of life energy that uh, feeds the planet and all life comes from it and all life returns to it. Uh, and Hironobu Sakaguchi okay. uh, has said... Uh, repeatedly in interviews over the years, that he came up with that idea as a way to cope with the sudden loss of his mother, who died while he was uh, developing Final Fantasy III. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I like I like that having something that's really really personal, your own grief over a parent and having an outlet through which to process those feelings by making a game that's almost universally loved. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Well, the quote from uh, Hironobu Sakaguchi is he came up with the life stream as a way to cope with her passing in a rational and analytical fashion. <laughs> that's cool. So, yeah. Yeah, it's just a little a little touch to the game that I always felt was, you know, very interesting. It's like you said, it's it's touching to have someone uh, put something like that into their work. Yeah, and it's 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 nice because it's like, of course, it was very personal to him and, and his own loss of his mom, but it's also clearly other people really resonate with that. Um. I'm I'm interested for you to tell me more about that stuff in the game. Um, I feel like we've done a pretty good job covering the the foundations of what led to Final Fantasy VII. Is there anything else you want to add? Uh, I guess there was one more thing that I wanted to talk about, and that was the the impact of switching from uh from 2D graphics to 3D graphics really had on the series. Right. I haven't mentioned yet that Final Fantasy VII was the first 3D Final Fantasy. It was the first to not be made in 2D sprite animation. Right. Yeah, That's that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And it actually, it really revolutionized the way uh, RPGs were made at the time. You know, it was definitely... This a mainstay of Final Fantasy, but it popped up in a lot of other 
early JRPGs and uh, you know, international titles too, but Final Fantasy VII really uh, innovated the concept of having a still-painted matte background overlaid with uh, animated graphics. Right. You know, they during development, the team was trying to find a way to... Yeah, how were they going to get as much detail that they wanted to mm-hmm. uh, into the scenes without, you know, well, still saving space? Yeah, right. Because yeah, they they switched to CDs, but they they were it was still multiple discs, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was still three discs uh, when it came out. Wow, can you imagine if they had tried to do that on the N sixty four? Here's your eighteen cartridges. <laughs> It it either would have been still a 2D game or uh, it wouldn't have come out, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was just something that I wanted to bring up real quick, is that uh, as part of, like, why is Final Fantasy VII so popular? Because it was the first Final Fantasy to really give you that wow factor. And like I mentioned before, they really stressed those 3D graphics in the ad campaigns. To the point where it was actually a detriment to when people realized most of the most of the backgrounds were were still still images. Yeah, <clears throat> but it sounds like it was sort of a a perfect storm of you know coming like there there was a little bit of the groundwork to have JRPGs be internationally uh, like a game genre that people are interested in um and then also having like the ability to spend millions of dollars on ad on ad campaigns and having it come out on the playstation and then i guess the playstation 2 later is like that's that's a lot of lucky stuff happening to this game is like i mean obviously the game itself is fantastic people really resonate with it but like Damn. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I would say the OG Final Fantasy VII. There was a lot of luck that went into its release. A lot of a lot of market research. Don't get me wrong, but there was also a lot of luck getting it ready for an international market. And mm-hmm. as a lot of people probably know who played the original game, there's definitely some some localization issues that happen there. Which, yeah, a, you know, another side note: localization. Specifically, awkward localization is one of my favorite things in games. I think it gives <laughs> JRPGs like such a unique, you know, character to them. <laughs> Shout out to uh, all the people who do localization work because that shit is so hard. I'm always impressed, even if it's awful. <laughs> Credit to Tim Rogers from Kotaku and his uh, series about the localization of Final Fantasy VII. I learned I learned a lot about this game through those videos. That was mm-hmm. a good video. Yeah, we will uh, we will uh, have links of those in the show notes. Um, okay, well, I feel like I've got a pretty good understanding of where where Final Fantasy came from. It's out. People are loving it or are extremely disappointed by it. And um, so, tell me, tell me. I, I know the basic outline of the story, but um, tell me, you know, for you. Uh, d- tell me, tell me about the characters and the narrative of this game. So, Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. 
so I'm a huge nerd specifically for anime and video games. I know that makes me very unique. <laughs> but I specifically I've spent a lot of time thinking about Final Fantasy 7 and why I like Final Fantasy 7 so much and what are the qualities about this game that like why did it hook teenage me? Why did it keep me going back to it? for well over a decade at this point because I have played Final Fantasy 7 at least at least 5 times. Yeah. Uh in the last 15 years. Well, 13 <laughs> years. <laughs> I had to do some math. I guess it all goes back to character designs because I'm I'm not kidding anybody. I like anime because it is a pleasing aesthetic and it has some cool, it has giant swords and spiky hair and and weird clothing and all of that is exemplified superbly in Final <laughs> Fantasy VII. Yeah. So, you know, I, I without lying to myself or anybody, I like anime and I like Final Fantasy VII because... <laughs> It's, it's very cool. anime. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that out of the way, you know, that's that's my lizard brain reasoning for liking <laughs> the series. That guy's got that's guy. He's got a big sword and he nice. shoots lasers. Uh, I ran into the I ran into a quote from the character designer for Final Fantasy seven, who is a person many people know now because he's become such a prominent figure in Final Fantasy and JRPG pop culture in general is a guy named Tetsuya Nomura, who he was the original character designer for Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VIII and X. And he later went on to direct. He was the creative head and director behind the Kingdom Hearts series. Ooh. And he also did the recent Final Fantasy VII remake. He was the director on mm. that. But I ran into a quote from him online where he was talking about the development of the characters for Final Fantasy VII. And the first thing that I thought was interesting was he notes that the story hadn't really been written by the time that he came up with the characters. Okay. And that is kind of like a, a guiding ethos in his work that he has continued to do throughout his career, it would seem. Where he, he does the character first and then builds a story around those characters? Yeah. So, you know, his process, he would, he basically said like, all right, uh, I have to make characters for the new Final Fantasy game. Well, they need a hero. So I'll just make a character who looks like a hero. <laughs> which I'm thinking like, okay, uh, anybody who's played D&D &D knows exactly what what we're talking about right now. <laughs> so I always thought that was an interesting take on, on creating characters, is to come up with them visually first and then see what, you know, what they look like tells the, you about them. It is really cool. And it, I mean, it sort of makes sense when you're talking about making video games because, you know, it's such a visual medium. 
Um, especially when you're talking about characters that you will be embodying and playing as is like it makes sense that you would want to start there because that's where your player is going to be spending most of their time. Mm -hmm. And so for Final Fantasy VII, you know, they knew that they wanted to do a story that at least started in a in a city with a group of people blowing up some kind of energy reactor. Or generator. Okay. That was basically all they had down for Final Fantasy VII uh, when they handed the project off to Mr. Nomura <laughs> to create characters for. Okay. And so he's like the perfect guy to blow up an energy factory is like a han- handsome, spiky, yellow-haired guy <laughs> with big pants. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, huge hands, huge boxy hands. <laughs> it, you know, they're optimal for, for committing acts of terrorism. <laughs> oh, my God. But actually, uh, the final design for Cloud, who is our protagonist, is much different than the way he originally started off. And first thing to note that I, that I learned not too long ago that I find hilarious is that before Tetsuya Nomura designed the characters and they reworked the framework of the story to fit around those designs, Final Fantasy VII was uh, in its first draft supposed to take place in New York. Mm, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. That's wild. Take place in New York on New Year's Eve oh. and... You are a group of eco-terrorists. Wow, you can really tell that this game came out way before 2001. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Another fun thing is that uh, concept of some kind of JRPG, sci-fi JRPG set in New York on New Year's Eve uh, did get used in a later Square Enix title called Parasite Eve. Mm. So a little bit of recycling there. But the Cloud's original design, getting back to that, was uh, actually, uh, he still had a giant sword, but he had short, slick-backed black hair. What? Uh, And it was supposed to be a visual, not disparity, but like a, what do you call mirroring, mirroring but opposite? A a subversion? (sighs) Um... That's not the word you're looking for. That's not the word I'm looking for. I'll get back to that. But it was supposed to be a contrast. Juxtaposition. Juxtaposition. Thank you. Was that the word? That was the word. Nailed it. Cloud's original design of short, slick-backed black hair was supposed to be a direct juxtaposition to Sephiroth's uh, long, silver, flowing hair. Right. Okay. I'm. I, I see that. I guess. I don't know. It's just so hard to, like, Cloud's big spiky hair feels so important to his character. (laughs) That's wild. I did not know that. Ultimately, that is why, you know, they went with that design, because like any good artist, Nomura made multiple versions of the character. It's a better silhouette. Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's how I make my most decisions in my life. (laughs) What casts the best silhouette? Yeah. Okay. Another another cool artifact. I just want to throw this in there. Another artifact from these 
pre-story character designs was Nomura originally envisioned Sephiroth and the character of Aerith being siblings, which is why they have the similar hair tufts. Ah, hmm. But that was later scrapped when they decided they wanted to have Sephiroth kill Eris. Oh, whoops. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. So that hey, that's a that's a thing that I know. Um, that in the um the American release, the localization named her Aerith instead of Eris. Even though I guess both pronunciations sort of fit with the the Japanese name, but um, she has two names. Is that is that true? Yeah, actually, <laughs> you have it backwards there. The intentioned pronunciation and the one that they've used in all other Final Fantasy VII releases, except for the you know original game, is Aerith, spelled mm. the th at the end. Okay. Because if you Aerith is spelled what a e r i t h and if you switch the e and the a and get rid of the i it spells earth <laughs> okay that that is a that's been confirmed they they chose the name Aerith because it kind of sounds like the japanese pronunciation of the english word earth Okay. All right. Which That's is a, cool. Yeah. Which is anybody who knows anything about the game, Aerith is your healing character, and she is what's known as an ancient. Uh, we can get more into that later in the themes, but ancients are an ancient civilization of people that were very in touch with the planet. Okay. All right. So there's there's Cloud. There's um, Aerith. Mm-hmm. who uh, you meet her when she's like selling flowers. Yep, she is. She's the flower girl. She is the archetypal, innocent JRPG love interest. You know, okay. uh, she's she has a poppy personality and she's always upbeat and you kind of like her, but in a, you know, in a non-sexual way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not I mean not not a lot of not a lot of sex in the Final Fantasy series. Yeah, it's just that that That's non fine. that non-threatening type of 90s anime romance. Yeah. Totally. <clears throat> okay, and then I know um Tifa is an important character. Tifa is a character that was basically invented solely because they decided before the game was written that they were going to kill off the female protagonist. Okay. That's kind of heavy. (laughs) I just, I just learned this in doing research about the game, but Eris or Aerith was there from the beginning and they knew that they wanted to have a character death that had a lot of deep emotional impact for the player. Yeah. Uh, And so they decided that, that they were going to kill off the female lead in the game. But, they also realized that because the only other female character got cut from the main story for budgetary reasons, uh, I'm talking about Yuffie, mm-hmm. they didn't have any other female characters after Eris died. So they oh. had to create a second one just kind of to be there so they could still have a, a girl character for players to look at. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't want to, there's some, there's some inherent sexism, in my opinion, to the creation of Tifa. Yeah, I mean, that is, that is kind of a bummer. With the context Feel like of that we story. Need a, yeah, we need another girl, because we're going to kill a girl. Um, kind of sucks, but. But that said, Tifa is one of my favorite characters yeah. in the whole series. and She's pretty cool. And I always romance her instead of Eris anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She is pretty cool. Okay, um, what what are the other? I know there are what at least two more like main characters you can. There's three play more as? main characters within the cast that you pick up along the way. Uh, you start off the game with uh, Barrett, who is the leader of Avalanche, which is the eco terrorists that you and your team or you and your uh, you start off the game as you're trying to blow up. These Mako reactors, because uh, they're yeah. sucking the life from the planet. And he's the um, this sort of stereotypical big, tough black guy. Well, that's another interesting thing that uh, kind of got inserted for the American localization. Ooh. Um, <laughs> they're like, oh, again, Americans love out. racism. <laughs> no! Well, again, shout out to Tim Rogers, um, but the Japanese translation of Barrett's lines have him play a much more standard, like, it's a role that really only pops up in in anime, to my knowledge. Um, but he is, like, the, the axe-tough older brother figure. Mm. That's the way his lines come off in the Japanese dialogue, is, you know, he's he starts off the game as, you know, you're kind of distant with him, and... He's kind of gruff and no nonsense. And then over the course of the game, you kind of bond a little bit and you go through some stuff together and he starts to open up with you about his past and his motivations. Uh, and he's honestly, he's a very nuanced character. The more I think about Barrett, uh, I never played with him when I was younger as a main party member. Uh, I don't know why, uh, I guess. Be honest, you know why. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe some latent racism. Who knows? I was going to say because there were girls that could be on your team. But if you're going to admit to the, the latent racism, you know what? Good for you. It's, it's <laughs> good to it's good to admit that stuff and address our own prejudices while we play games that even sometimes they confirm those prejudices. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. <laughs> but back to what I was saying in the American release probably due to the heavy time constraints that the localizer had on getting a translation of the game out. Uh, if I remember right, he only had about six weeks between the Japanese release of Final Fantasy VII and the American release. Wow, that's... Oh, okay. So, like we said before, three three discs to this game. You have to translate three discs worth of stuff. Whew. That's a lot. So, and again, this goes back to my comment about awkward localizations being some of my favorite things in JRPGs, because a lot of stuff just doesn't translate. Yeah. You know, uh, stuff that they translate literally that has a whole slew of other context that just <laughs> gets left behind. And yep. that happens probably most of all to Barrett's lines because... Uh, I don't know if it's just due to the time constraints or if they were just kind of feeling 
really strung out at the time, but the localizer really leaned heavy into characterizing uh, Barrett as a Mr. T type. Yeah. Yep. And there are several occasions throughout the American release of the game where Barrett does make reference to his skin color and also Cloud's skin color that never come up in the Japanese version. So Cloud, Aerith, Eris, Tifa, Barrett, Barrett, Yuffie. Uh, so Yuffie is a Yuffie and Vincent we can talk about simultaneously because they are characters that are present in the game and honestly very important to the overall story of Final Fantasy VII as a series. But due to budgetary and time constraints on the development of the original game, uh, were relocated to secret characters, basically. Uh, you had to go through a whole bunch of kind of complicated side quests and puzzles to get them in your party. Mm. Uh, which I find very interesting because a lot of their stuff is still present in the final game, uh, even if you don't acquire them as party members. Uh, so Yuffie is a teenage ninja from <laughs> the continent of Wutai within the world of Final Fantasy VII, which is kind of like their stand-in for China, but also reversed because it's a small country. It's very, very weird what they were... I'm not exactly sure what they're trying to say with that, but... Yeah, that sounds like there's probably... Um, politics that we as American white people do not have access to. I'm betting money on it. Yeah. But in the context of the game, Wutai is a uh, eastern country island nation that recently lost a war prior to the start of the game, and their capital has been relocated to a foreign-occupied uh, tourist attraction. Um, and Yuffie is the is the rambunctious rogue daughter of the leader of Wutai. And so it's weird to have like all of this uh all of this like political implications with that storyline in the game. Mm -hmm. Uh and then you can totally miss on the miss out on the one character that provides any kind of context to it. Yeah. Uh, no, same, what about Vincent? Same with Vincent. You have to go through a complicated series of puzzles and fights to get him in your party. And once you do, you find out that he's actually very... You know, his context within the story is very important to the backstory of the main villain. Because his backstory is directly tied to the creation of Sephiroth within the world. Okay. Um... And so both of these things are stuff that you would think are very, like, would be very important to flesh out the story that you're trying to tell. Yeah. Uh, and because they were ran out of time and money, uh, they just kind of had to stick them on the back burner. Yeah, there is something sort of cool about that, because you don't tend to get that kind of interaction with, you know, non-vital NPCs in other games. To have to have a secret character have like surprise that much connection to the overarching story is pretty it's it's pretty cool. I kind of like that. 
obviously it would be better if they had gotten to do what they planned. But I think um, given the constraints that they had, that's sort of an interesting way to get people to like really engage with your game, especially, you know, if you're playing through it and you miss it the first time and then you hear from your friends like, oh, my God, did you talk to Yuffie? And you're like, who the fuck is that? Like, that would be pretty dope. Well, yeah, I mean, surprise, there were secrets and you missed them. Go play it again. It's one of those things that actually, now that I think about it, is very different than uh, modern gaming ethos, where a move like that would be uh, viewed as, well, first of all, if they had never made Final Fantasy VII and they were releasing it today, Yuffie and Vincent would be released as paid downloadable content. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Uh, and if uh, they, they get released in the second season, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and if they weren't, if they were still somehow secret characters within the game, uh, there would be I don't know, uh, incentive to replay the game because of in-game product placement. Mm. Uh, just my cynical take, but at the time that they did come out, it was a cool Easter egg that you still got to if you were a fan of the game and you really loved exploring it and doing everything that you could, then you could be rewarded by getting access to playable characters that enhance uh, that particular replay of the game. Yeah, that's actually a great point is having, you know, rewarding exploration in games is typically just like, you know, you get a, a piece of gold or you get an item or, you know, you get to see something cool um, having like not only whole ass characters as a reward for exploration, but having like uh, deeper, like a deeper connection to the plot or, or a, a more contextual understanding of your place in the, in the plot is like a really, really cool reward for exploration. Mm-hmm. It's like in, in other games where it's like the exploration is finding like lore pieces, except that then the lore pieces get to play in your party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's really stuff cool. like that that pops up all throughout Final Fantasy as a series and, you know, Final Fantasy VII as well. Like, uh, yeah, there's lots of really, I don't know, archaic kind of mini games that you can play like the chocobo racing slash breeding mini game right which you know you you get to a point in the story where you have to catch a chocobo to get past a, a roadblock and then after that interacting with chocobos and catching them and breeding them is all on you and it's something you would only do in game if like you were just really enamored with this world and exploring it and doing everything. And you really love chocobos. The reward for doing this really, honestly, boring chocobo minigame where you have to catch a chocobo and then wait so many battles before you can bring it to your stable and then wait so many more X amount of you know battles before you can breed it and then racing it a bunch of times and doing that over and over and over again to get the mm -hmm. best chocobo. Uh, it's it's hours of work, and then you are rewarded with a really cool item. In this case, you know you get a materia that has uh, some of the... You, you can you get access to a bunch of materia that has the best abilities and magic in the game. 
Nice. But it's like, all right, here's a reward for doing this really boring thing. And I just, you don't see that a lot in games. At least I don't. Yeah. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if that's something that was maybe also put on the back burner because of lack of time and funding. It's like, don't don't spend as much time trying to make the mini game fun. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, anyways, um, we've been talking about these characters. Uh would you refresh me with the the general narrative of Final Fantasy VII? Yeah. So the general narrative of Final Fantasy VII is, uh, and this is going to be a real truncated version, but spoilers. Um, you start off the game, you are playing Cloud Strife, a mercenary who is employed by the eco-rebel uh, group Avalanche, led by Barrett, uh, one of the other playable characters, and their goal is to blow up these giant power generators around the city of uh, Midgar. Uh, and the generators are controlled by this evil corporation known as the Shinra Corporation. Uh, and they are trying to destroy these uh, energy plants because they are draining the life from the planet. And so that's the backdrop from the beginning of the game. As you move through, you meet uh, Tifa, a childhood friend of Cloud, who is also part of the Avalanche movement. You also meet Aerith, who is a local flower girl that gets caught up in your machinations because she also has a connection to the Shinra company. And so you work with Avalanche to blow up a couple of these reactors until Shinra decides that their retaliation plan is to drop a giant section of this city. I should mention that the city is constructed like on these elevated plates and Shinra is going to destroy the structure that keeps up one of these plates and drop it on the slums that occupy the uh, under area, which is where Avalanche is located. Mm, okay, so we've got a real real basic situation of uh, some sort of corporate overlord that is literally uh, illustrated by having like an undercity and an overcity. Which is a theme that keeps popping up over and over again throughout this game. The concept that Shinra goes to these places and creates, you know, an industrial city and creates this disparity. So it happens in Midgar. That is that's where the game starts and it's where Shinra is headquartered and they have this giant uh disc-shaped city elevated on these plates above, you know, a vast network of slums. And then you have another city within the world called Junon, which is like a coastal military town and it's built on the side of a cliff and Shinra built this giant military city on the top of the cliff and then all the poor people live down at the beach on the bottom mm -hmm. underneath them okay and then it happens again you later get to a place called gold saucer which is kind of like a giant casino theme park again uh extravagant wealth and you know giant buildings constructed on top of a desert that houses a, a slum. 
Okay. So yeah, this this is a thing that keeps popping up in this world that there's like not only is there a severe class divide, but it is it is like locationally obvious because literally there are people living under other people. Yes. Over and over again throughout this game. It's, okay. Yeah. And so that really, at least in the beginning, because a lot of the themes of this game are very heavy in the beginning and kind of get sidetracked when we get more focused on the character story. But at least at the beginning of the game is very heavy on the theme of environmentalism. You are Avalanche, and you are trying to literally stop this evil corporation from sucking the energy out of the planet. Yeah, which you said was it was the the life stream is what it's called. Yes, which you know we find out later on is literally they're harvesting like the collection of souls from everything that's ever Ooh. lived and turning it into electricity. Oops. Uh. You know, you have this theme of anti-corporatism, like you were just saying, uh, of this constant class divide that we are uh, subjected through. You know, the first five, six hours of the game is spent in the Midgar slums going through the different sectors, which are kind of like, you know, cities within the overall undercity of Midgar. And you spend a huge chunk of time going through these really beautiful beautifully constructed environments of like just huts and shops and buildings that people have constructed out of junk that has fallen down from the rich people. Mm. You know, there's a section of the slums in Midgar where a bunch of the buildings are built out of like recycled airplane and tank parts from the military like that's what their buildings are made out of okay which you know i can see where the imagery come from comes from considering the history of japan after american occupation in world war ii yeah but those are the the those are two of the strongest themes that i see in the beginning of the game you know the overall game has this theme of life in general, which uh, goes back to uh, Hironobu Sakaguchi talking about, you know, dealing with his mother's death and how the concept of a constantly flowing and recycling stream of energy throughout the world was a comforting thought for him. Yeah, and then, you know, the the intrinsic horror of the idea of somebody taking that and and using it for their own selfish means. Yeah, so we should get back to the general what's going on in the game because that gets us to the second half. So we go through the first half of the game kind of fighting this Shinra Corporation trying to save the planet. And that kind of all culminates with you storming the Shinra headquarters and getting all the way to the top of the tower to fight the president. That's when the story takes like a left turn because that's when you... Okay, so you're going... This is not Sephiroth. This is a different villain? Yeah, so... Well, we... I mean, Shinra is the effective yeah, villain. Yeah, okay, so the group. Yeah. Okay, so but it's a, it's the president of Shinra. You, you go to fight... I mean, his name is President Shinra, so... <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, inter, I'm using them interchangeably here. 
Okay. But yes, he's he's the evil he's the evil Jeff Bezos of All right, our corporate overlord. Uh-huh. And you go with your your two buddies yep. and you go to face him and you get to the top and then Sephiroth shows up. Yeah, and you you're gearing up to go fight you know, President Shinra or whatever. Maybe he has a giant robot. Probably. Uh but you get there and one of the most impactful moments in the game, at least for me, and it was when the first time I played it, it was when I'm like, oh, this is actually this is not going where I was expected because you get to the top of the tower and the president's dead. Oh, Sephiroth has killed him. Uh, and that is when you are introduced to the whole Sephiroth plot line, which, you know, leads into Cloud's backstory. And we kind of Shinra is still present throughout the story, but they're more like they are a, ter- a secondary villain at this point. They are responsible for the creation of the real threat, mm. which is Sephiroth, who right. uh, is a genetically modified super soldier that has a backstory with cloud oh right isn't isn't it in the beginning cloud doesn't remember who he is just that he he was a soldier but he doesn't know that he's like a super soldier or anything like that yeah so heavy spoiler territory but (laughs) with this whole podcast is spoilers the the assumption is built in we're doing deep dives you're introduced to cloud as a mercenary who is an ex-soldier Soldier spelled in all caps. <laughs> and they are the the elite super soldier military organization of Shinra. So Shinra is such a huge, giant corporation that they're basically their own, like, nation. And they have their own military. And Cloud, you know, he's presenting himself as a mercenary who no longer works for them, but did at one point. And that's why he's so good at fighting. And then throughout the course of the story, you find out that that is not true. Cloud, though he did go off to try and join Soldier when he was a teenager, never passed the test. And so he was just a regular Shinra, you know, grunt. And all the backstory and flashbacks that we had seen from Cloud's perspective, you know, throughout the game, it is eventually revealed that it wasn't actually happening to him. He was there, but he is, like, projecting his own memory onto the actions of another character. Mm. And so it is revealed that he has been lying to everybody. He was never in Soldier. He has been assuming the identity of this other person. But he still has a backstory with Sephiroth personally. Does, Does he know that when you first see Sephiroth? Do you know that when you first see Sephiroth? The player does not know it. Okay. It's at the beginning of the game, every once in a while, you get these random, like Cloud will have like a headache and you'll have this high-pitched whining sound and then something will snap him back to reality just before he's about to remember something. Mm. So by the by the time of the reveal in the game of Cloud's actual backstory, he has been lying to himself so convincingly that he believes things happen differently. He kind of has a breaking point moment where he has an existential crisis. But then, you know, at the end, he's fine. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Again, they really gloss over 
this is a very standard anime thing, but lots of issues are just kind of solved at the end with the power of friendship. Okay, fair enough. So, yeah, he he lied about his identity and had a, like, mind-breaking dissociative episode for years, but he's fine. He's fine. He's fine now. He he acknowledged the issue, and now he's fine. Yeah. Okay, uh, I, th- I feel like we skipped ahead a little bit. You, you go, and you're going to f- fight the president. President's already dead. Sephiroth introduces himself. Well, then he doesn't happens? really introduce himself. He's just kind of like shows up in weird cryptic like cutscenes and doesn't give you a lot of information. <laughs> it, to be honest, the American localization makes it really hard to follow along ah. with what's going on because uh, you don't get any of the implicit intonations with the language that mm. you would get in in the original, in the original one. Original, so yeah. sometimes it just seems like. Sephiroth is saying nothing, but there's a dialogue <laughs> box that has a bunch of ellipses. <laughs> ah, okay. Stuff like that. But yeah, that you really that's where the plot of the meteor and the crisis to the planet comes into play. And so uh, you get to the top of Shindra Tower, president's dead, Sephiroth has killed him. Cloud knows that Sephiroth is a bad guy knows that he has a past with him, but doesn't really know why he has to be the one to go fight him. Because you literally, you you fight your way out of the headquarters after finding the president dead, and then you leave Midgar, and then Cloud just says, all right, I have to go find Sephiroth now. <laughs> okay. Uh, and everyone else is like, well... The Shinra are still trying to destroy the planet, and Sephiroth <laughs> has some kind of connection to them, so I guess we'll just go along with you. Yeah. And so you go through a series of set pieces from that point, by which I mean, you know, different locales where you don't do a whole lot. It Wait, really... is, is that when, is that, does Sephiroth, that's when Sephiroth kills Eris, right? That's the culmination of all of these little episodic set pieces. Ah, okay. So you leave Midgar. And, so you're you're chasing him, through and you're these chasing places. him across the map, basically, and you're going okay. to all of these different areas, and it's introducing you to the world now. Yeah, I remember uh, I you know watching a little bit, and then having people talk about it, the game and their their play experience, and having that that moment where you've been spending however many hours walking through Midgar and everything, and then all of a sudden. It zooms out and you're, what, on like a uh, a ship or something? A, a uh, car, well, you, a boat, you, <laughs> something like that. You leave the city and originally you're just oh, on you're foot. you're just walking. Right, right. So it's just like your little, your little boxy cloud guy is standing on this like world map and you realize that like, holy shit, like Midgar was just this small piece of this and look how much more there is and like how cool that was, especially I imagine, you know, back in 97. Well, actually, that's something I'd like to talk about a little bit because a lot of people say that like, yeah, the world opens up after that point, but Midgar is easily the most detailed and most well thought out section of the game because you spend the yeah. first like nine, 10 hours in this city, no no overworld map, 
you're just going back and forth between these very intricately created set pieces of the Midgar slums and the corporate headquarters of Shinra and meeting all of these characters that live out these surprisingly detailed lives, you know, if you take the time to go around and talk to all of the all of the ambient characters. That's sort of what I'm talking about. It's not not necessarily that there is actually it's not an open world game and there isn't a lot of legit content outside of you know the the main little islands of cities but but the idea being like that feeling of having spent so especially like you said if you were spending time doing like side missions and talking to the npcs in in the slums and everything is like that that moment of like realizing there's a whole rest of this world to go to Mm -hmm. and like like how small but also big that kind of makes you feel because it's like you're just you're just one little cloud but also like damn you gotta go get Sephiroth like you gotta (laughs) yeah so this is something that we kind of touched on at the very beginning but once you leave Midgar and you go out into this open world at the time in 1997 that was that must have been amazing yeah yeah i imagine like that moment would have made a lot of people just sort of put their controller down and off for a moment you know at uh, at the time overworld maps and like a a sized down representation of the world that you can travel between that was a mainstay in final fantasy but having that presented in 3d for the first yeah. time and, you know, walking away from Midgar and seeing new stuff pop up on the horizon as you went forward. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that uh, that must have been big for people. Yeah. And I find that I'm not going to call it wasted potential because they really, you know, they made a lot out of it. But at the same time. The same amount of thought was put into constructing Midgar and the first half of the game as it was to designing the entire rest of the world outside of Midgar. Yeah, I mean, I, on one hand, like, ugh. But on the other hand, that does make sense. I, I know in a lot of game development, um, obviously, you, you work on the early parts first, and a lot of the times that'll end up being the demo that you show to everybody. And so the the beginning of the game, that first area or whatever, will be really, really polished compared to everything else. Um, and, and sometimes that does not get fixed at releases. Sometimes you still have a game that is very polished in the front half and real rough in the back half. So you leave Midgar, you go to the town of Calm. So Calm. From this point out, naming of places gets really on the nose. (laughs) Okay. Calm is... The only thing that happens there is you go and you stay a night at the inn and they talk about Cloud and Sephiroth's backstory. Or Cloud reveals the first bit of information about Sephiroth. And Sephiroth was, like Cloud, is pretending to be at this point. They were both soldiers working for Shinra. And they went to investigate a monster attack in Cloud's hometown that he hasn't been back to since he, since he left to join Soldier. Uh, and through the course of those events, they they go to Cloud's hometown and they check out the reactor. And Sephiroth discovers that he was created in a 
science experiment to make a super soldier. And this drives him insane. And with this new knowledge about himself, he burns down Cloud's hometown and mm. and disappears. Whoop. And so now, now we know the reason for Cloud wanting to pursue Sephiroth. He thought okay. that he was dead, but he's now alive. And he wants to take revenge for... For killing Burn, his, for burning, burning my his town. down. Okay. And so from there, we go through the series of episodic set pieces. We go to uh, Junon, which is that town I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. The, another Shinra town with a lower slum and an upper class literally positioned above them. Mm-hmm. You know, we go to the town of Costa del Sol, which is... Again, a resort town for rich people from Shinra, staffed by by people who don't live there, uh, who are just trying to make money. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those things where this recent playthrough of Final Fantasy VII, I really tried to go out of the way to to talk to every NPC, mm-hmm. just to try and get the most complete image of the world that they yeah. were trying to 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 set and yeah if you talk to all of the the bartenders and the locals in in this beach town they all say stuff like yeah i don't live here but this is where the jobs are or you know like i can't like i was born here but i can't afford to live in this town which someone from santa cruz i can relate to yeah and as soon as you leave that episode because these are all really set up as, like, you can play them in literal anime 20-minute episodes. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's the way the story structure is broken up. So you leave Midgar. The next episode is Cloud's backstory and staying in calm. You leave there. The next episode is Junon. Uh, you leave Junon. The next episode is this beach town. And then from there, you go to Gold Saucer. And you meet Kate Sith, which is another character that we didn't talk about. That's the the alien-looking guy? Yeah, Kate Sith is by far the weirdest. It's like a big kitty monster? So, Kate Sith is a robotic toy cat <laughs> being controlled remotely by a character named Reeve who is a Shinra executive, but is like, he is trying to be subversive. It's part of the resistance. Well, he doesn't start off that way. He originally starts off working for Shinra, but then has a change of heart after Mm. he betrays you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, He does betray you at some point. But yeah, I'm not sure exactly where the concept for his character started, because he is a robotic toy cat that is controlling another robotic stuffed animal. But it is not clear whether the secondary toy is being controlled mechanically by the cat riding on top of it, or if the entire bundle is being controlled remotely by by this other character. Weird. Yeah. Anyways, you, yeah. you pick up you pick up Kate Sith. You pick up Kate Sith, and then from there you go back to Cloud's hometown and you get a little bit more context on his backstory with Sephiroth. 
you learn of Tifa's backstory during that day because Tifa is also from the same town as Cloud. Mm -hmm. And that is also the point in the game where you can pick up Vincent if you do his his side puzzle. Okay. Um, and then you go to Rocket Town from there and get the character of Sid, who is, isn't super important to the overall story. He's kind of a Final Fantasy mainstay. Every Final Fantasy has a, has a character named Sid in it. Uh, so, what? Yeah. Weird. Okay. It's, it's one of those like thematic crossovers throughout the entire Final Fantasy. I'm imagining the um, the menu screen right now. There are there are six side characters you can pick up, right? Uh, I believe there are eight playable characters overall. There's Cloud, Tifa, Barrett, Sid, Kate Sith, Yuffie, Vincent. So seven seven characters and Aerith and Aerith. Then she dies. Yeah. So eight characters overall. Okay, so that does that does fit with what I'm imagining because Cloud is on the on one side and then all of the other. It, it, that doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, okay, so you're picking up all your characters. You're doing these um, little set pieces that are are revealing more and more of Cloud and Sephiroth and Tifa's backstories. Yeah, and Aerith as well. At this point, you're kind of piecing together the story of why. Aerith has a background with Shinra. Aerith is a magic uh, girl. She's a yep. She's an anime magic girl. <laughs> um, she is part of a ancient race of people called ancients, and their whole thing is that they were very in touch with the planet, and they could talk to it, and and learn how to take care of the planet. And they have this prophecy within their culture that. You know, when they will eventually be led to a promised land. And Shinra is trying to use Aerith, who is the last ancient, to lead them to the promised land because they think that they're going to be able to suck up all of the life stream energy. Mm. And so that's what's going on there. Uh, I should also mention at this point the tertiary villain of, of the story, which is an alien entity called Genova which ties into Cloud and Sephiroth's backstory. But prior to civilization within the lore of Final Fantasy VII, an alien being crash-landed on the planet and started sucking up all the life energy. And mm. all of the ancients at the time, you know, sacrificed themselves to seal it away. And millennia later, the Shinra Corporation dug up a piece of it and started using it in science experiments to make super soldiers. Ah, okay. Which All is right. where the creation of Sephiroth comes in. All right. Sephiroth I, okay. goes insane because he learns that... Uh, He's a science experiment? Yeah, he thought that he was an orphan, but actually he was made in a test tube. Uh, by injecting a human fetus. I thought I with... was an orphan, but I was a super orphan. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, he was born by injecting a fetus with alien cells. Uh, and now his grand plan is to assemble all of the alien Genova parts that have been scattered across the planet and assemble them in one place and use 
his use that in conjunction with some evil magic to make a giant meteor crash into the planet. And then when the planet tries to heal itself from that meteor impact, he'll steal all that life energy and become a god. Okay. None of it really matters. <laughs> uh, because, again, he's the bad guy. He doesn't succeed. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, maybe this might be a good thing to end on. Because, you know, obviously you go through the story, you find out that Sephiroth is trying to hurt the planet to absorb its healing life stream energy and become a god. Aerith, as the last ancient, has the power to stop that by using a ancient magic spell called Holy, which is, again, all of these magic spells, Meteor and Holy and all that, mm -hmm. are like recurring thematic things that pop up in the Final Fantasy series. Yeah. So she goes to the City of the Ancients and summons the magic of Holy to defend the planet. And at that point is when she, Sephiroth kills her. Okay. Because he, he knows that she's trying to stop his, his evil plan. Okay. And so what I'd really like to talk about is the implication of Holy because... It doesn't really come through in the American localization, but I've since learned that there is a throwaway piece of dialogue in the American version that was actually much more important in the Japanese uh, script, where it talks about how Holy has the power to save the planet however it may choose. It even may wipe out all of us. Mm-hmm. And so interesting. Basically, it's this idea that Eris is telling the planet, all right, we're putting everything in your control and defend yourself, even if that means getting rid of all of the humans. Mm. And in the in post game release interviews, the writers of Final Fantasy VII, specifically Yoshinori Kitase and Kaguya. Kazushige Nojima, who did the most work on the final script, have said that in their vision, I should mention first that the game ends on a very ambiguous point. You travel to the center of the planet and defeat Sephiroth from... Sucking up all the life juice. Yeah, from sucking up all the life juice, but the meteor is still crashing down. And mm. the final cutscene of the game is the meteor coming towards the planet and these giant a giant web of life stream coming up to stop it. Ooh. And then the game, you know, f fades to black. You go through, you go through the credits and then you get a post-credits cutscene, which again, something I had never seen in a game before. Yeah. Of one of the characters. Oh, I forgot about Red 13. Who's Red 13? Uh, Red 13 is another character, a playable character. Oh, uh, shit. He's kind of like a lion dog thing. Oh, okay. I've seen pictures of that guy. Yeah. And again, he is a he's a race of creature within the Final Fantasy VII world that is very in tune with the with the Earth, like the Ancients. Through his through his story uh, within the game, you learn a lot about the life stream. But you get a post credit scene of him. Starts off with the title card 500 years later. Oh, 
and you get a scene of him running up the side of a cliff and he looks out in the distance and you see Midgar covered in in foliage and overgrown jungle. Ooh. And so the game ends very ambiguously for the characters. Yeah. You know, everybody's watching a meteor crash down and then credits. And kind of spooky. So the writers of the game have said in their vision, Holy, Holy decided that the current generation of humans would be the last one. <gasps> and so post... Post Final Fantasy VII story, like the canonical ending is all of the humans died within the next 50 years. Mmm. No more babies for you. <clears throat> Which I think really ties it back into that theme of environmentalism and, you know, corporate greed. Obviously, uh, you have that line of holy will save the planet even if it destroys all of us. Yeah, that, that which at the time seems, you know, contradictory. Yeah. You think you're trying to save humanity. You're not. You're trying to save the planet. Yeah, you're trying to save like all of life force, not just he- human lives. That's that's I like that. That's pretty deep. Mm-hmm. Um Okay, well, I feel like I get I get it. I get the game. I get why people really enjoyed it especially if they you know looked past the uh the blocky graphics of the actual gameplay and and committed to like talking to people and and reading all this interesting backstory and lore and everything um it's very cool i i would like to hear specifically uh from you um you said you you played this a little bit later in your life than when it when it came out um you were 17 high school um, why why do you think that it resonated so much with you specifically in that time? I think that it resonated specifically with me because a lot of the themes... I mean, first of all, it had that anime cool factor. That's what drew me in to begin with. Gotcha hooked. I said, that character has a motorcycle and a giant sword. Kick ass. <laughs> I'm in. You got me. Let's go. But, you know... Uh, <laughs> I think it appealed to teenage me's like I'd never seen. First of all, I'd never seen a mixing of genre like that because Final Fantasy VII was the first Final Fantasy to not be a pure fantasy game. Mm-hmm. As in, you know, like sword and spells, and it was mixing of sci-fi and steampunk and and traditional fantasy that was really unique for the time, and that caught my eye. And it also really appealed to the teenage rebelliousness. You know, it was a story about fighting the man. Yeah, and I I mean, I don't know very much about the earlier Final Fantasy games, but I don't think any of them were quite as political as as 7 was, right? Uh, I would actually say Final Fantasy 7 is the most politically charged in terms of themes and narrative of all the Final Fantasies. They actually kind of back off of it, really, in later titles to mm-hmm. focus much more on character aspects of a of the narrative. Okay, so you you liked sticking it to the man. <laughs> I mean that that's it's what was fun, but it was a mix of a unique setting, unique characters, visually appealing aesthetic, mm-hmm. uh, and also like having played it. 
several years post-release, you know, a decade after it came out, uh, it kind of, like, came tied with this feeling of, I never had a PlayStation growing up, but now I do, and I can go back and play all of these classics and be in on it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which was another thing that I really liked, because I spent a lot of time growing up, honestly, like, coveting video game stuff that I could not afford on my own. Oh, yeah. No, I, I same. <laughs> I totally understand. And yeah, I was I was a, a mild mannered kid, so I never really like would never directly ask my parents for for something like that. So, you know, I got a PS2. I got a PS2 in 2007 which is like seven years after they were released on the market. Mm-hmm. I got a PS2 right before the three, the Xbox 360 came out. Yeah. So a sense of nostalgia has always been built into my, my view of the Final Fantasy series. But uh, with that, you know, I played seven and I really liked it. And I was able to use my interest in that game to make friends with other people that also had a interest in Final Fantasy, and that's how I was able to play the other games. And, you know, what really got me into the series overall. Nice. Yeah, building that social connection over over something that you really enjoyed, and even though it's kind of old, it still feels important, and having other people be like, yeah, <laughs> it's like, that's nice. <laughs> I mean, it was probably to the point where I was, like, talking about, like, yeah, Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy Seven, man. And everyone else is like, dude, that game came out nine <laughs> years ago. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's cool that you like it, but like, shut up. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, would you say that there are certain characters that you really connected with or, or you felt really empathetic towards uh, while playing? I mean, it's a cop out because, uh, I mean, Cloud... Obviously, well, yeah, he's, he's but the main he's, character. Makes he's sense. the protagonist. He is made to be empathized with, mm-hmm. and actually, the whole you know story arc involving his amnesia and uh, carry the amb- ambiguity of his background. Mm-hmm. Tetsuya Nomura has stated that he came up with that idea because he wanted to make a character with a fixed story that was still easy for the player to relate to. And by having his past start off ambiguous, it was easier for the player to imprint themselves upon Cloud. Yeah, that makes sense. Because then, like, as Cloud is learning information about Cloud, so are you. So he's really reflecting the the same sort of feelings that you're having. It makes mm-hmm. sense. Were there any of the, the side characters that you really liked? Uh, I mean, it mostly plays into my just personal aesthetic preferences obviously my favorite characters design wise were always Sephiroth and Vincent uh, because they were the dark edgy uh, <laughs> sleek characters and yeah. <laughs> again uh, Nomura has stated that when designing them especially Sephiroth he was trying to keep this uh, Japanese concept called uh, and I'm probably not pronouncing this correctly but Kakoi mm-hmm which translates to sexy cool. All right. Uh, and it's like, it's a, a word specifically meant to convey a quality 
unique to someone who is both good looking and like dark and mysterious. All right. Uh, and so that just kind of played into my general anime edgy angstiness that I was going through as a teenager <laughs> at that time. But on a, on the most recent replay, I actually identified with uh, Barrett the most. Yeah. Because with this new context of what his lines are supposed to be like in the script versus less Mr. T less Mr. T and more. um, Well, did you watch much of Final Fantasy 15? Uh, That was the the one with the four boys going on a drive together, right? Yes. Yes. I I watched mm, most of that game. So I actually find that Barrett is supposed to be closest in characterization to uh, Gladiolus from Final Fantasy XV, which is, yeah, he's he's also the the gruff older brother type. Yeah. Okay. That you know, I I actually find his relationship with Cloud, if you keep him in your party through most of the major interactions, to be really touching because. uh, Barrett starts off as this like, you know, you think you're so hot. I'm out here trying to save the planet. Mm -hmm. You ain't shit. You just have a spiky head. (laughs) And And then then, you get to see their their relationship actually develop over time and and through their shared experiences. Yeah. And you get to this point where Barrett really opens up and is like, well, you know what? (laughs) Maybe you're not as bad as I thought you were. You're actually... You know, maybe you do care, and maybe I didn't actually care as much as I was letting on. You know, maybe my motivation is less about saving the planet, like I've been saying, and more about getting revenge on Shinra. Yeah, I mean, I well, we'll be talking about the Final Fantasy VII remake from from this year uh, more in a, a later episode. But I do remember as I, I watched some of that game, I really, I thought Barrett was a very cool character and it was cool to see him soften over time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So him and, uh, I would say him and Tifa were the characters that I had the most interest playing, like interacting with Mm -hmm. in, in this most recent playthrough. Although, I did I did play through the majority of the game as much as I could with Aerith in my party uh, because I was trying to... Pl- I do this thing with Final Fantasy games where because you can't have all of the characters in your party at once, uh, I try and stack my party in a way to where what I think would be the most appropriate setup for the next cutscene. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <laughs> if I'm... I like that. You're like, I don't care about your skill sets. I want you to make sense to being in this the background of the, my cutscene. Come well, on. Yeah, like, so <laughs> uh, you fight an evil scientist named Hojo at one point in the game, and he is can be described as, like, the main antagonist to Vincent. And even though I had not been playing with Vincent really at all up to that point, I still put him in that battle because I thought it made the most narrative sense. Yeah. So that's why I played with uh, Eris as much as I could this time around. Uh, so here, here's a question: um, you you played the game much later, so I don't know if the 
Aerith death scene was a surprise to you? It was not, unfortunately. It was not. Okay. I was going to ask if that had been like an impactful moment for you as you were playing through the first time. But I think given that it had already been out for a while, you probably would have heard. Honestly, that's (laughs) probably the main reason why I always gravitated toward... uh, interacting with Tifa the most throughout the game. Because you're like, I can't get too attached. Yeah, I already knew from the beginning that Aerith dies halfway through. I'm like, well, I don't want to spend time leveling her up. (laughs) That's funny. Uh, Final Fantasy VII has been hugely important to my development as a video game enthusiast, as a nerd, and as someone who critically consumes media. Mm-hmm. I think that you you can't replay a game five, six times without really incorporating it into what makes you you. Yeah. I look forward to talking about the other entries in this series because, you know, I will say the the next episodes are not going to be as well thought out because every entry in the series after this is not as well thought out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in, in our next episode, we're going to be talking about the other Final Fantasy seven specific stuff, right? Yes. So that would be, um, there's a, a couple of movies and some comics and a couple of shorter games. Is I don't think, right? I believe there's, there's a couple of movies, uh, some animated shorts, I don't think there were any comics. There was a series of Japanese light novels that were written. Hmm. And there was a handful of spinoff games that came out. Uh, None of them super... Well, some of them more well-received than others. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that later. But um, yeah, so I feel like we've covered OG Final Fantasy VII pretty well, right? I think so. Is there anything else that you want to add um, that's uh, more specific to you and your experience of playing this game over the years? I mean, it's it's a it's a give take relationship because Final Fantasy VII, the original game, has given me so much, and each subsequent iteration has just taken. <laughs> Okay, well, it sounds like we're going to have lots of uh, feelings to talk about in the next episode. Um, This has been a really fun conversation, Nate. Thank you for uh, telling me all the cool details of Final Fantasy VII. I learned a lot, and um, I can definitely see why people really, really loved this game. Um, You are definitely not the only one, and uh, it's really cool that we can connect over this kind of stuff. Media that we care about. I am very excited to nerd out more about this and many other things in the future. And thank you for talking me into doing this with you. <laughs> All right. Do you have a, an outro or should we just like bounce? <laughs> um, I'm just gonna...